Good morning, Cornerstone. Sorry for the late start. Sorry for the late start this morning. I want to begin today with an excerpt from a political or philosophical poem, if there is such a thing, by Austin Heath. It's entitled, Why I Quit Individuality. She says, nowadays, people love to tell you or want you to believe themselves to be strange, eclectic, or odd. And it's vaguely sickening to me to a mild degree. We think we're so different, but we are not. The individualism of people should be and is comparable to the individualism of ants. Who looks at the anthill and sees something in particular, something behaving specifically uniquely from every other ant? Take, for example, the psychological malady of depression. You tell your friend that you are depressed and your friend does not respect you, but instead wants to tell you how they feel worse than you do, or how they have it worse than you have it, or how they understand your situation. A person looking for individuality through a lens of misery, anguish, and sadness is truly alone in their minds and missing the reality that these depressions that exist would exist without them. The depression that they feel is present to some degree in every human soul and they are not unique. But to these people, the statement you are not alone is an attack or an offense because it says you are not as unique as you think you are. It strips them of their identity and of their individuality. This is true of many ideologies. This is true of many personal affirmations. The writer says, I quit individuality, this constricting sense of holding everything of yourself in center, to be a drop in the hole, to be something fluid, because if you part ways with your personal affirmations, you see that we're all the same. And all our personal affirmations about ourselves are just currents in the same ocean. I look at myself and people look at me and they see me as a man and sometimes as a musician. And as labels, these each have their own presupposed notions which hardly, if ever, are even true. But as affirmations go, when I consent to using them, these are no longer stereotypes that constrain me, but similarities that I realize I can embrace. My personal affirmations do not make me more unique. It simply makes me similar to more people. And if I remove these personal affirmations to try to get to my true self, my true center, I find that I am now without meaning. And this is why I quit individuality. 
I love that. Humanity today is miserable. More miserable than you might think, especially in America. In 2014, the HHS conducted a National Health and Nutrition Survey of the total population of the country. They asked the respondents how frequently they had depressive symptoms in the previous two weeks. And these are the numbers. These numbers are staggering. Low energy. 51% of Americans say that several days to nearly every day they have low energy. Sleep problems. 37% say several days to nearly every day they have sleep problems. Loss of interest. 26%, appetite change, 25%, depressive moods, 24%, difficulty concentrating, 18%, low self-esteem, 17%. The world is in a dire and a desperate state. These figures come from the richest country in the world, so we can only imagine how these numbers would be inflated in some of the poorer countries. While there are many and different variables involved, I am certain that a lot of the psychic misery that we experience in this country and around the world is due to a hyper-individualism that has always been brewing behind the scenes but is now becoming full-blown right before our eyes. Hyper-individualism. Each person wants their own personal story. Everyone wants to differentiate themselves from the larger story of the nation, of the country, of the world, of all humanity. Opting instead for our own unique identities, our own unique affirmations and vernaculars. But here's an observation for you. When wildebeest in Africa cross the Mara River in Kenya, they tend to stay close together and they tend to cross all at the same time from one side of the river to the other side so that they can avoid predators, they can avoid being killed in the water. There is strength in their numbers, there is power in their collective. But in the West and in free countries, we're choosing more and more to trek across the river on our own. And because of our hyper-individualism, we are being swallowed whole by the psychological predators that lurk beneath the cosmic rapids. We reject our parents' narratives. We discard those domestic myths and stories that have fed our ancestors, and we choose instead to make our own personal stories, to be defined by our own subjective affirmations. We do this, we do this in ignorance because we do not understand that many of the definitions that color the horizon of humanity have evolved systematically over thousands of years. Hmm. But we overestimate our individual ability to navigate life and we underestimate the difficulties, the complexities involved in discovering true meaning and purpose. We think it's just as simple as that. And alone on our individual islands, we die a slow and a painful death, realizing all too late that my individual story only has meaning when it participates, when it is part and parcel of the collective story 
of all of humanity. And so Romans chapter 5 stands as a rebuttal, a refutation of this individualistic way of thinking and understanding my existence. What this teaching in Romans chapter 5 verses 15 through 21 suggests is the concept of corporate solidarity. Corporate solidarity. Paul explains to us in these passages the proper manner in which we are to understand ourselves and all of humanity as being identified with either Adam, the first man, or with Jesus, the last Adam. This concept of corporate solidarity is prevalent throughout the Old Testament as each individual is identified as part of a group normally as part of the head of the group. In Joshua chapter seven, verse 25, Israel was unable to defeat the city of Ai because of the sins of one man in their group. And usually the way God dealt with the group depended on the actions of the head of the group. For example, 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 34, when Solomon had strayed away from the right path and God could have punished all of Israel because the head, Solomon, was out of order, out of line. But the text says that God continued to keep his covenant with them because of the faithfulness of David, not because of their individual faithfulness, but because of the faithfulness of David. God responded to the group because of his relationship with their head. In 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 34, God defended Jerusalem from the Assyrians for, the Bible says, for David's sake, for the head of the group's sake. And this is the way God has always dealt with humanity, as a corporate entity and not as individuals. And in doing so, God simplifies our dilemma today. God alleviates the need for me to find myself. When I was born, I was already identified. I was already marked. And God has always seen me and known me as either in Adam or in Jesus Christ. And those are the only two options. Whether you're Lutheran or Calvinist, whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you're black or white or Asian or Hispanic, whether you're liberal or conservative, whether you're bond or free, you are either in Adam only or in Christ. And those are the only two options that God recognizes. <laughs> Last week we learned that we all have sinned in Adam. This is the doctrine of original sin. But the Bible teaches that we can all be made alive again in Jesus Christ, and this is God's plan. This is what God is accomplishing in sending his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, into the world. It is God's grand design of recreation by which he intends to make all things new. Adam, the first Adam, represents the first creation. But as we all understand, Adam sinned and brought all of creation down from their dignified place, plunging us all into the chaos of ever-increasing and ever-evolving sin. That's to the first Adam's credit. <laughs> he plunged us all into the depths of depravity. 
In contrast, Jesus Christ is the new creation. Have you ever looked at it like that? Jesus Christ is the new creation. And all those who identify with Jesus Christ become a part of God's new creation project. We were born of Adam, not by choice. We had no say in our first generation. We didn't choose to be good or to be evil. We were born into sin. It was a passive birth in which we had no say. But if we are to participate in God's new creation, we have to make the choice. We have to place our faith in Jesus Christ and learn to follow his teachings. And over time, incrementally, we are transformed into Christ's likeness in preparation for our eternal home. These are the two states of affairs with mankind. These are the two men. These are the two central heads of all of humanity. God does not recognize any third representation. God has not created any other pathway besides these two. He views us as either in Adam only or in Jesus Christ also. But the world thinks this concept to be too narrow-minded. Surely there must be other ways to God besides just Jesus. There are all kinds of people in the world. There are all sorts of beliefs and preferences and practices and tastes. Why would God only use one way to save the world. This is the argument that the world poses to the church. And our answer is simple. God has only provided one way to salvation because only one way was necessary. It was only because of one man that sin came into the world and it only took one man to counter the power of sin and its effect on all mankind. It only took one way. And as to the preferences and tastes of men, as to the practices of men, we must understand that God did not send Jesus Christ into the world to respond to man's preferences. God sent Jesus Christ into the world to satisfy his own wrath. God's anger is only against one man, Adam. And we are born heirs to that wrath, heirs to that punishment that was given to the first man. And therefore, it only took one man to pacify God's wrath. It only took one man to bring on God's judgment. It only takes one man to pacify God's wrath. And that man is Jesus Christ. Adam offended God by his disobedience in the garden. But the Bible says in Jesus Christ, the Father is well pleased. And if we placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we are now the beneficiaries of the grace of God. And so now Paul begins to differentiate between the gift of God's grace as compared to the offense that Adam committed. And what Paul wants us to understand is that the grace of God far exceeds the sin of Adam in every way. He says in verse 15 of Romans chapter five, that the gracious gift is not like the offense. Well, we could read that to say that the gift of God's grace is not like the sin of Adam. Paul says here that God's grace differs from Adam's sin in its scope. He says, if by the offense of the one, 
If by the sin of Adam, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift of God by grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. The grace of God differs from Adam's sin in its scope. In other words, God's grace reaches further than Adam's sin. There is more grace in the world than there is sin in the world. You ever thought about that? Let me say it again. There is more grace in the world than there is sin in the world. As bad as the world is, as horrible as things are, there is still more grace in the world than there is sin. The grace of God, the text says here, overflows to the many. The grace of God is more abundant than all the sins of the whole world. And secondly, Paul says that the grace of God differs from the sin of Adam in its application. He says in verse 16, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from the one offense. The judgment arose from that one sin that Adam committed. Death came into the world in response to, death came into the world to address just one sin. Death didn't come into the world to address your sin. You're just a byproduct of Adam. Death came into the world to address Adam's sin. But by contrast, the text says, the gracious gift of God arose from many offenses. In other words, in other words, the judgment of God only addresses one sin, the sin of Adam. Meaning that the judgment of God is very narrow in its application. And you and I stand before God as guilty all because of the sin, not the sins, but all because of the one sin of Adam. On the other hand, the grace of God is broad in its application, much more broad than God's judgment. God's grace, the Bible says, covers the multitude of sins, the sin of Adam and the many, many sins that have occurred since the dawn of time. His grace is greater, his grace is more. God's love outweighs God's wrath. God's kindness outlasts his anger. The grace of God is far different than the sin of Adam. Next, the gift of God's grace differs from the sin of Adam in its results. Paul says in verse 16, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from the offense of one, resulting in condemnation. The sin of Adam led to God's judgment and resulted in our condemnation. But on the other hand, Paul says, the gracious gift of God arose from many offenses, resulting in justification. The sin of Adam brought condemnation, the grace of God brings justification, where God sees us as being righteous. Paul goes on to say in verse 17, if by the offense of one, death reigned through the one, Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul is saying here, the condemnation of Adam leads to death. The end result of God's grace leads to justification. This condemnation or this justification 
that is available to each of us is not the result of anything that you have done. Let me say that again. The condemnation or the justification that you will experience is not because of anything that you have done. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. Jesus Christ will receive the reward and if you are in Jesus Christ, so will you. Adam will receive the punishment and if you are in Adam, so will you. God only recognizes these two men. Huh. That's a very humbling thought. God only recognizes these two men. Anything that God does for me in the name of Jesus Christ, he does not do for my sake. He does for the sake of Jesus Christ. <laughs> kind of put things in a different perspective. That individualism begins to seem rather foolish. You are not an island unto yourself. You have ancestors, you have lineage, either the lineage of, of Adam or the lineage of Jesus Christ. You're not as unique as you thought you were. There are only two men that God even recognizes. Adam and Jesus. Whew. That's heavy, man. That's overwhelming in a sense. That the continuity of the sins of Adam have marked me for condemnation even if I haven't sinned in the way that Adam sinned. But that the continuity of the righteousness of Jesus Christ marks me, even though I am not righteous. It is all passive. I played no role in the sin of Adam, and I played no role in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I simply inherit these things. I was born into sin. I was shaped in iniquity, but I can't just be born into Christ. I have to place my faith in him. It's not passive. I have to submit to the teachings of Jesus. I didn't have to submit to the teachings of sin. I was just born. And I was a ranked sinner day one. Didn't have to pass any test, didn't have to agree to anything, didn't have to sign any contract. I was a sinner day one. But Jesus Christ said, you must be born again. What does it mean to be born again? You must be born again. You must become a part of the new creation. Did you know that you are a new creation? We are in this world, but Jesus says we are not of, are not of this world. We are a different creation. That's a bold statement. Not only are we not like you, not only are we not like the world, but we have no part in the world. We can't even relate to this world. <laughs> this world is not our home. We're just passing through. We belong to another kingdom. We are on team Jesus, while the world is on team Adam. There are only two teams. Paul says, but on the other hand, the gracious gift arose from many offenses resulting in justification. He goes on to say, if by the offense of the one, death reigned through the one, much more will those who receive the abundance of God's grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through Jesus Christ. So then, as through the offense, the result was condemnation to all mankind, 
so also through one act of righteousness, the result was justification of life to all mankind. In other words, our punishment and our rewards are not directly tied to ourselves, but they are directly tied to our corporate solidarity, either with Jesus or with Adam. We then are passive benefactors. We have done nothing to warrant judgment, and we have done nothing to warrant eternal life. We die because of Adam, we live because of Jesus. Paul says that we were made sinners. Listen to how he states it in verse 19. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, were made sinners. I like that. So also through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. You're not righteous or unrighteous. You were made a sinner or you were made righteous if you're in Jesus Christ. While in and of ourselves, we are not righteous or a sinner. Indeed, we have not sinned according to the sins of Adam. We have not been as righteous as Jesus Christ. We are sinners because our ancestor Adam was a sinner. And if we're going to be considered righteous, it will be because we have identified with Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Corporate solidarity. Now Paul begins to conclude by explaining in verse 20 that the law came in so that the offense of Adam would increase. That's very interesting. The law came in so that the offense of Adam would increase. Sin came into the world and the law came into the world chasing sin. The law, the Ten Commandments came into the world to exacerbate sin to the point where we could recognize that something was wrong with us. That's the purpose of the law. It's one of the main purposes of the law, to alert us to the fact that we are not capable of doing the things that are in our own best interest, in the best interest of others, or in accordance with the will of God. The law came to expose our own sinfulness. And God knew, God knew when he sent the law into the world, we're going to talk about this later in the book of Romans, God knew when he sent the law into the world that our flesh was going to have an adverse reaction to the law. He knew that already. God knew when he sent the law into the world that mankind was going to find his law to be offensive. As it holds out before us a quality and a value that we yearn for but we cannot attain to. We cannot obey the law. The law signifies to each of us that we are wretches undone. And our response to the law is to defy the law all the more and sin increases. And that was the purpose of the law. But Paul says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And this was God's plan all along, all along, that as we become aware of our uncontrollable propensity to self-sabotage by committing sin, we would begin to search for and we would begin to find his grace, that we would become a part of his new creation. That was the plan all the time. So that, Paul says in verse 21, as sin reigned in death, so also grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord.
There are only two stories, brothers and sisters. There is only one way that leads to death. That is the way of Adam. There is only one way that leads to eternal life. That is the way of Jesus Christ. And the decision for each of us has to be whether we'll remain in corporate solidarity with Adam or whether we'll find our faith and place our faith in Jesus Christ and become a part of this new creation. There is no other way. There are no other choices to be made. There is no third option. I've been making this observation for many years. I'll make it again today. That mankind is in desperate search. Mankind is in desperate pursuit of a third way. There is only heaven and earth, but mankind is determined to create a third way, a humanistic way. The internet gives us this virtual reality, somewhere suspended between heaven and earth, this virtual space that is not even real, and we are buying into it more and more. We're trying to find a third option. We're trying to recreate ourselves. We don't want to be a part of God's new creation. Mankind wants to make its own creation. Mankind wants to make itself new. And it's not going to work. There are only two men that God recognizes. Adam and Jesus Christ. And you are only a part of one of their teams. Either in Christ or in Adam. And we will each receive the rewards that are due us according to the team that we choose. This is a very humbling concept, but it really simplifies all of life and it makes our choices rather clear. It relieves the Western mind of the need to create my own self because I am a part of someone else's larger story. And I will live or I will die based on which family I choose to align with. No man is an island unto himself. No man is the creator of his own self, but we are made and created by God Almighty. And God has determined that there are only two people, only two heads of all of creation. And whether you choose to or not, you will be aligned with Adam. You're aligned with Adam at birth, the first Adam, but you can choose to align yourself with the last Adam. You can choose to be born again. You can choose to be made over again. That's the message for the unbeliever today who may be watching. That you must be born again. That you must decide whose team you want to be on. That you must decide whose team you want to play on. If you choose Jesus, you will receive the gift of eternal life. If you choose Adam, if you choose the world, you will receive damnation and punishment. But what does it mean for the believer today? For the believer, I think this means that we must begin to disidentify from this world and all of its systems. I believe that God is calling us to disidentify more and more from this first creation, to find our identity in Jesus Christ 
alone. I believe this really simplifies the, my entire life story. I don't have to run around trying to figure out who I am or where I fit. I fit in either one of two teams. <laughs> there are only two. Of course, in, in the world, we have a lot of different teams, blacks and whites and gays and straights and all this stuff. We have all these different groups and all these teams. God says, I don't recognize any of that. There are only two that I'm even recognizing, Adam and Jesus. If you choose any social group, then you, you've chosen Adam. <laughs> whatever your preference, whatever your taste, if you choose any worldly group to, be, to identify with, you've chosen Adam. Or you can choose Jesus Christ. I hope that you choose Jesus Christ today. And I hope that this helps all of us to be more clear in understanding that while salvation is for us individually, salvation is a much larger story than any one person. This is about Jesus. And we just happen to be a part of his family. And we are heirs because we identify as a part of his team. Let's pray. Father God, the gospel of Jesus Christ is so amazing. It makes me smile. As we observe and recognize your wisdom in the way that you have made us, in the way that you have made a way for us through Jesus Christ our Lord. We thank you today for making the choice so clear so that even a fool cannot miss the way. I pray for each of us today, Lord God, that as we choose every day, when we wake up in the morning, as we make our choice, that we would choose Jesus over and over and over again. That we will be able to disidentify from this world by the power of your Holy Spirit. That we'll find our identity in Jesus Christ. That we'll accept his story as our own story. That we will live with him, that we will die with him and in him, baptized by your Holy Spirit. Today, Lord God, we stand in solidarity with the Lord Jesus Christ, willing to suffer as he has suffered, believing that we will rise again in him. Thank you for this way that you have made. Thank you for the precious gift of your grace that we did not deserve. Help us to make full use of the means of your grace, Lord God. Empower us to become more and more like Jesus Christ each and every day, to disidentify with this fallen, broken, and soon to be dissolved world. In Jesus' name.